there is no map for long-term cancer survivors like me. Early cartographers annotated their maps with a warning when the boundaries of their maps reached the edge of the known world. A copper globe created in 1510 carries the Latin phrase, hic sunt dracones, or here be dragons. There is so much to be learned to improve the experience for people living with cancer today, and to improve survival among those with the most recalcitrant of cancers. Patient registries and efforts like the National Cancer Institute's Exceptional Responders Initiative are important steps to potentially reveal parts of the map that are hitherto unseen. But more can be done. Many survivors, such as myself, actively raise our hands to participate in research. So keep calling on us. Learn from us and for us. Make the most of our survivorship. No aspect of research should go to waste. That was Adam Hayden, a philosopher, writer, cancer survivor, and so much more, reading from his first opinion essay entitled, Here Be Dragons, Long-Term Survivors Like Me Can Help Map the Boundaries of Cancer. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Oh, thank you so much. It's just an honor to be here. You know, you and I have been corresponding since 2017, and it's such a pleasure to be actually talking with you today. It's amazing how it just uh, deepens our relationship just to see each other, even in tiny little boxes on my screen. <laughs> it does indeed. Adam, for listeners who don't know you, I'm just going to offer this brief description. You were working on a graduate degree in philosophy at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, when you were diagnosed with glioblastoma, a form of brain cancer in 2016. Did that diagnosis come out of the blue or, as is so often the case, was there kind of a run-up to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question that kind of has two answers. I mean, on the one hand, I have no major medical history. I mean, I hadn't even broken a bone in my life. Um, so uh, just from a general health standpoint, uh, to get a brain cancer diagnosis certainly was out of nowhere. Um, but there was a long diagnostic journey leading up to the diagnosis. In fact, it was about 15 or 16 months long. Um, wow. So it was a circuitous path to get the actual diagnosis. And did you have family at the time? Yeah. So uh, my wife, Whitney, and I uh, were just beginning our family, uh, three young boys. And uh, when I was diagnosed, our youngest of those three was only eight months old. That must have been an exceedingly difficult time. You know, it's um, goodness. I, I recall looking in the eyes of our oldest um, when he was born, and I felt like I knew that child forever. Uh, he was just introduced to the world, and yet there was this bond that I felt. Uh, so it was tough uh, to navigate 
what looks like a life-limiting diagnosis uh, with this, you know, future possibilities for our kids. And so that was when in 2016? Uh, let's see. So I had surgery in late May of 2016. And then, you know, you get the official pathology report a couple of weeks later. It was on June the 10th of 2016 that I had the official diagnosis, glioblastoma. You're five years out from your diagnosis. Put that in perspective for glioblastoma, please. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so glioblastoma is, man, one of the most grim uh, prognoses out there, unfortunately. So it is the relative survival rate is about 7% uh, for people that live five years out. So just meaning uh, relative, meaning regardless of kind of that molecular characteristics of your disease, it's, you know, around about 7% of people live five years uh, with the disease. So a simple, you know, just to flip that, Gosh, it means 93, 94, 95% of patients that were diagnosed the same month I, I was uh, have since passed. Um, so it is, it's pretty staggering uh, to reflect on that statistic for sure. How have you come to grips with it? Yeah, I, I, maybe we shouldn't presuppose that I have. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, how do you come to grips with it? I, I, so what I say uh, is that I know where I want to go uh, in the future. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get there. So what makes the most sense to me is to do something every single day that's going to help me get there in the future, regardless of if I know I'm going to get there or not. So, I, you know, I want to uh, I've got a book manuscript that I'd love to get published, for example, and that's not a plug for that. But if you're listening, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, so, for example, I knew that I wanted to write a manuscript. So every single day I wrote a little bit. Um, so I think that's how I'm reconciling myself uh, to this big and scary thing. Uh, the reality is, uh, the longer you survive, it's sort of like the more likely it is that you're going to end up uh, with a bad scan around the corner and disease progression. Um, you know, sometimes past performance dictates future performance. And this is sort of the opposite. The longer you live, uh, the, the more slim are the margins that you'll keep living. Uh, so for me, it's like, how can I focus on something every single day that's going to help me achieve a long-term goal? You know, you just answered a question I was going to ask at the end. There was something that my colleague Drew Joseph wrote in his profile of you for STAT that um, I read and I was going to ask. He wrote, how do you know how to spend the time you have left when you don't know how much time that might be? That's kind of the existential question, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And, and hats off to Drew, um, who's such a nice guy and a talented writer and a great journalist. Uh, but it, it, yes, that is the big existential question uh, is, you know, should I just be in Vegas right now, you know, rolling the dice on it all? <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how do your children respond to this? Yeah, we have taken them along the way. And I think we kind of had to. I mean, as I mentioned, they were so young when I was diagnosed. I think what we've tried to do is be honest, uh, but age appropriate. Uh, we've tried not to hide anything from the kids. So we have open conversations with them and we try to make them a part of this. I've shared elsewhere, you know, that we talk to our kids about, so I have persistent seizures, one of the, the side effects that we're not fully managing uh, through medication. So our kids sort of know what to do. Uh, if dad's having a seizure or having a bad day, uh, we walk through seizure drills. As, as children may do fire drills in their home, uh, our kids sort of know what to do if dad were to lose consciousness. Um, so it's, you know, who knows what that's going to look like as they age, but we hope we're doing the best job now. And that there's never any way to tell if you're doing the best job now, but to just go ahead and do it. That's exactly right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so decision-making for people with cancer or any other kind of life-threatening disease, it must be a never-ending challenge. You kind of lauded 
uh, McCain in 2018 for deciding to stop disease-focused therapy and direct, her, and direct his care toward comfort and for doing so publicly. And you later wrote that, quote, medical decisions tend to balance the quantity of life against the quality of life. How do you approach that? Pat, I think you're exactly right, that we need to consider where our quality of life is at any given moment. You know, I did have an experience. I had no wake brain surgery. It was a wake to kind of limit the risk uh, to some of the functional areas of my brain. Uh, you could take all the tumor out good. Uh, but for me, if you took all of it out and damaged the surrounding healthy tissue, I would be left with permanent left-sided paralysis. My surgeon said, Adam, you've got to make a decision based on where your quality of life is today, not where you think it may be in the future. And that's kind of become the slogan uh, for Whitney and I as we think about our medical decision making, as we check in with ourselves, where is quality of life today? Let's not imagine what may be the case in this uncertain future. Wow, I bet that's a very hard thing for most people to do. What I've found uh, is that I am doing things uh, that I didn't imagine possible uh, when I started out uh, on this journey. So I think we are often surprised at our behavior, and uh, it's nice to be pleasantly surprised uh, when we respond to moments uh, in a good and productive way. So Adam, during the initial uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, you argued that people living with serious illness offer strategies or dimensions for the public during this strange time. Those things included advocating for the community, using precautions responsibly, following evidence-based interventions, and embracing a virtual culture. Do you still feel that way? You know, it's been an important uh, message in my advocacy work uh, to say, listen, you can have serious illness, uh, and yet you can have a life of meaning and of purpose and of well-being. Uh, and I think that's true in kind of the disability justice space. Generally, folks often think uh, folks with certain impairments or disabilities must have a lower quality of life. So it's been important to me to say, well, listen, actually, you can have some impairments, you can be seriously ill, uh, but still have a really positive outlook on the world. And I think that was one of those kind of nuggets of wisdom that has come to me through illness, that during the the a pandemic, uh, I thought, you know what, us folks in the illness communities have faced adversity, and we have learned from that. And here are some of the strategies that you can employ. So I think the effort uh, was to help the general population feel okay uh, with, you know, I do need to rely on my neighbor or my relative, my brother, my sister, etc. Uh, I learned that through illness. So I think it was important to try to promote that uh, with others. I, I think I do uh, still feel that way. Um, I think all the time uh, I'm experiencing this sense of personal growth uh, that I learn more and more each day. Uh, it turns out you're never done learning, uh, even if you're in a, this sort of medical uh, crisis. Uh, yeah, so the virtual culture, all that great stuff um, that I think was tough for folks to adjust to. I think now we're seeing in the rearview mirror, like, oh, it turns out I can work from home and be productive. So some of those lessons that everyone is now learning in the world, uh, I think I was quick to say, listen, those with illness, uh, we've learned these lessons and maybe we've learned them a little bit before you. Uh, let me tell you uh, how you can learn from what we've learned. And who knew that something like COVID-19 could engender uh, long-term conditions? you know, what people are calling long haulers, uh, who may be in it for quite a while. That's exactly right. I'm so pleased to see 
you know, that the Biden administration has recommended, for example, that long haulers, uh, those COVID, long COVID cases uh, should be eligible for Social Security disability income, for example. I think that is. uh, So I have also uh, gone through the Social Security disability income application process, etc. And I think the fact that we're focusing on that as a way to lift up our our fellow citizens, that's really, really important. And, you know, as so I think uh, it's important that we continue to research around COVID uh, and long COVID, um, but also to understand the political uh, and legislative and policymaking priorities of of any uh, long-term serious chronic uh, illness. So you've written that, quote, expert patients are undervalued. What do you mean by expert patients and how are they undervalued? Yeah, yeah, you're going to uh, trap me in, in uh, a definition here. I'm going to bring my philosophical training to the fore as you try <laughs> to pin me with a p- principle. Um, you know, so there are lots of these. Are we expert patients, engaged patients, activated patients, simply e-patients, um, or maybe just we're people? Uh, that's as my friend Michael Fratkin, a palliative care physician, says, you aren't patients, you're just people. Uh, and I'm not a physician, I'm a person too. Um, so I think there is some disagreement around what the proper term to use is. But I think that there is uh, a, a little bit of a mm, stratification, maybe that's not quite the right word, because I don't want to introduce any hierarchy. But I think uh, just like folks uh, who are generally healthy, uh, have strengths and opportunities and areas of interest and affinity, the same is true within the patient population. And some of us uh, are just really drawn to being sponges with our diseases. How much can we learn about it? How much can we take part in the trial process? Uh, do we see our care teams as partners or simply listen to them as sort of whatever the doc says? goes. So I think, you know, these expert patients or e-patients, you know, we are the ones who really lift up things like shared decision making and being a partner with your medical team. And I think that for us, uh, that helps us uh, really plan our care and set goals of care that are appropriate. And yeah, I think that there is an opportunity for the general population. You know, it's never too early uh, to start thinking about uh, what the future may hold for you. Um, so if you can learn about your general health and well-being today, you don't need a diagnosis to be engaged in your health. And maybe that's the lesson that some e-patients have to offer. Interesting. You've worked, I think you've worked with the Patient Centers Outcomes Research Institute. I just know it as PCORI, um, and I always get the full name wrong. Um, that seems like a, an extension of what you're talking about. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, PCORI is a terrific example for this. Um, and there are, I mean, Dave Bronkhart uh, is another great, I mean, I think ePatient Dave, a lot of people are aware e-patient of who, Dave, who yeah. ePatient Dave is. Um, so absolutely. Um, but, you know, dating as far back as, I mean, even Hippocrates, uh, or at least the corpus of writings that are attributed to Hippocrates, you know, he was lifting up kind of whole patient care. I mean, uh, Hippocrates said something like, uh, you know, it's more important to know uh, what person a disease has than what disease a person has. Uh, so I think that has been with uh, modern medicine for thousands and thousands of years to really focus on who the person is uh, and to make that the center of care, uh, not only the disease. So you return to the theme of expert patients, engaged patients, whatever term you want to call them, in your latest first opinion essay about tapping long-term cancer survivors like yourself to help map the boundaries of what's known and unknown about cancer. I love the here be dragons metaphor. What sorts of things can long-term survivors do to map the boundaries? 
Yeah, I think, you know, that this is something, this is really a, a new and innovative. I mean, we hear so much about things like, you know, immuno-oncology or immunotherapies. We see kind of cutting-edge treatments. Uh, but there's also cutting-edge movement around survivorship. Uh, the fact is that we are seeing uh, longer and longer and longer survival rates for many cancer types. Now, uh, sadly, brain cancer, just to, to put on my advocate hat for a moment, uh, we are not seeing uh, the same progress around brain cancer uh, survival rates. So they are stubborn and haven't moved much in about 30 years. But generally, uh, as we have an aging population, as we have more and more folks who are developing cancer, but then learning to live with it, or even going into a no evidence of disease or what folks might call a remission, uh, we're going to have more of these long-term survivors like me. Uh, the fact is, uh, you know, you can tell me, uh, here's the, the first line kind of standard of care protocol for you, Adam, uh, but that's only about a year long. Uh, so if I go to my doctor and say, hey, I'm five years out, what should I be doing? Uh, it's mixed, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, what evidence directs really how to live your life uh, long into survivorship. So I'm kind of a, a case, an in of one. Uh, and there are many other in of ones, uh, hundreds and millions of us globally. Um, but the things that we can do, uh, you know, I think, uh, keep faithful record of our symptoms and experiences. You know, we uh, like to jot down symptoms in a notebook here at home just to kind of track how I'm doing over time. Um, but keeping those things and scaling them so that that becomes standard practice uh, for many, many uh, patients. Uh, our brain bank is an application, is an F smartphone app developed for glioblastoma specific patients. Um, but you track your symptoms in that thing daily. Imagine the wealth of data that would be available to the research community uh, when we have huge record sets of patients doing daily symptom tracking. So even passively, I think that there are things that long-term survivors can do. You might not be able to you know, admit that in your uh, IND application to the FDA, uh, but certainly can help direct the research agenda. Uh, yeah, so tap into us. We're out here and we want to help. You know, from what I've learned about glioblastoma, about 200 people in the U.S. are diagnosed with it each week. You must often hear from some of them. It's true. Um, yes. So that's, um, yeah. And Pat, it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm going to say this, even thinking that some of them may listen to this. Um, I am so honored to be a resource for newly diagnosed folks. Um, but it also, uh, I've learned that you really have to regulate uh, how engaged you become uh, because you are rehearsing uh, your own story time and time again as you connect with others. So it's a little bit like returning to the scene of the crime. Uh, this is... I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for the experience that I've had and my care team and my surgeons were terrific. And uh, I'm just, you know, it's still traumatic uh, to have an awake brain surgery, to be in an operating room and to have a portion of your skull removed while you are conscious. That's a tough experience. Um, so I do get uh, a lot of emails from newly diagnosed people, and I'm very happy uh, to connect them with resources. Um, but, you know, if I don't email you back right away, it means that I'm having a tough day. <laughs> so... Yeah. There must also be times when you just want to forget about it all. Yeah, that's right. And I think those, you know, it's interesting to have those days when I don't think about the cancer at all. Um, I think I would have more of those days if I hadn't uh, decided to really invest my time in advocacy. So I think it's a little bit by choice uh, that I'm in this all the time. Uh, and I'm on the board of directors of a large brain tumor nonprofit. So it is on my radar <laughs> just about every day. Uh, yeah, but when mm -hmm. I can, you know, when we can go to the, uh, you know, go to the community pool and have a great day and uh, I forget about my brain cancer for a while, uh, that is a good day. Kids can help you do that, can't they? <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh, kids uh, have a, a magical gift of helping you think about nothing but their demands right at that time. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, you you recently offered advice on Twitter for people who were one day out from a cancer diagnosis to those a decade out, um, that it's fine to be scared, joyful, angry, to shout about it, and to be quiet about it. What are some of the most frustrating or aggravating myths and misconceptions you've run across that people have about living with cancer? Yeah, there there is this perennial issue uh, that, you know, folks think th- that pharma's got to be up to something, <laughs> you know, that... Um, and, and I don't, I mean, listen, I mean, I think alternative therapies, I think, have a place. I want to be careful about, um, you know, I've tried some like diet nutritional stuff. So, um, but I think it is. Uh, so here's a great example. I got an email from somebody who was telling me that a certain type of eye drop could help cure my brain cancer. And so that's oh, frustrating, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's an extreme example. Um, but I do think, you know, a lot of folks think, oh, well, you should not take chemo. And here's some other alternative stuff that you should do. And, you know, that just is simply not true. Uh, there certainly are other s- supplemental strategies and even things like mindfulness and meditation. I mean, those are helpful to maintain well-being and well-being and positive outlook is going to give you the energy uh, to accept your care and be a participant in that care with your physicians. But, you know, there's an article from even not that long ago that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association or JAMA that showed that, you know, folks that do engage in, in these more alternative uh, therapeutic strategies do tend to have a worse prognosis than folks who engage in the standard of care. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, you can have, it can be a both and, uh, you can, you know, get your acupuncture and eat organic whole food diet. Um, but I don't think we should do that while eschewing uh, the standard of care therapies that are out there. Uh, we've got a terrific biomedical research infrastructure uh, in America and around the world, and we should take full advantage of that. One of the myths that I've seen is that people with cancer are living their lives mindfully and fully when most people are just trying to get through the day. Um, you know, it's it's funny how that is projected onto people living with cancer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's this sort of... Um you know, transcendence through suffering or something like that. I mean, I think, you know, people will say, oh, Adam, you are an inspiration. And I mean, that's meaningful. I mean, thank you for saying that. Um, But that is not on my to-do list each day. I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, how can I inspire somebody today? Um, And, you know, (laughs) even when writing my blog posts and stuff, uh, it's usually because I have a specific idea or thesis that I want to introduce, but it is not in an effort to say, you know, let me be an inspiration to everyone today. (laughs) So let's talk about glioblastology for a second. Uh, I follow I follow it, um, and, and I have to say the photo of your family on the about page is just terrific. It's a lovely uh, photo of you. It looks like in the fall in um, in Indiana somewhere. Are there you know some you've mentioned that you do some of the writing to help people and to advocate. Are there other reasons you're writing? It is a, a therapeutic practice, absolutely. So I do. I mean, it's. Um, you know, self-serving in some way. I mean, it is, uh, I've needed to write throughout the entire process. In fact, uh, you know, I've filled up many journals. I mean, even writing while in the hospital, uh, between a couple of inpatient stays, I was in the hospital for a kind of a month straight. And my journal from that time is a cherished possession. When I want to think about those times, I flip through those pages and it brings me right back to those moments. So writing is indeed very, very therapeutic. I've not known, you know, some some cancer patients, you know, write letters to their family. Uh, I've not been able to find the presence of mind 
to write specific letters. Although Whitney, my wife says, you better get on this, <laughs> you know, so that's an outstanding <laughs> to-do list item. But I do hope uh, that my boys will read that blog. Uh, and it's, it is somewhat chronological. So you can kind of go through the journey and you can see my thought process evolving. So yeah, when I sit down to write a post, that is always in the back of my mind. Will this be a new dimension of my boys to understand who their dad was and what he was about? How did your training in philosophy influence your approach to dealing with what you're dealing with? There's a, a thought experiment in philosophy, especially the philosophy of mind. And this is kind of like the film. I know this is a dated reference, but like the film Matrix, you know, are you plugged into this big thing? Uh, there's been a, a long standing debate in philosophy. How can we really be sure that we're not just brains in a vat? somewhere, brains in some, you know, wired up simulation, uh, that when you actually try to find the rock bottom truth to disprove that, you know, it's kind of tough. I mean, of course, it's a thought experiment and nobody takes it literally uh, that we're in a big simulation. But anyway, I had a philosophy professor when he found out I was going to have this awake brain surgery. He said, well, finally, we'll figure out if you're a brain in a vat. <laughs> so that was a good... <laughs> So philosophy is kind of always with me. But I'll say this also, uh, there are some limitations uh, in Western philosophy. And I found out that when I turned to some of those philosophical texts for support, uh, I didn't find as much support for this time in my life as I had hoped to find. Philosophy in the analytic tradition, the kind of the Western tradition, is a lot about logic and reason. It's written from kind of an objective stance, but that objective stance really means it's a pretty heteronormative, uh, male, cisgendered perspective. Um, so if you're somebody, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I've got a disability and I've got this serious illness, so when I turn to philosophy to get help with that, uh, there are not volumes of things available to me. Uh, it's a much smaller bookshelf. Um, so I, there's also an opportunity in philosophy to do more of this work to support folks with illness and disabilities. Adam, I think I could sit here and ask questions all day, and my bet is you could answer them. Adam, I hope you stay in the long-term survivor group for a long, long time, and I look forward to reading your next glioblastology post and your next first opinion submission. Thank you so much, Pat. It's, it's been so much fun just speaking with you uh, and not just emailing yes. back and forth. So thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and the executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>